so I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful for who you are, oh God. We do bless you and praise your name this morning. Lord, we lift you up and we exalt you and we give you glory, which is due your name. Lord, we we are just uh, exceedingly thankful for all that you are to us. Lord, you are so good to us. You care for us. You meet all of our needs. Indeed, you give us life and breath and everything else. And we are very thankful. Lord, that you would even take us from our sinful state and reconcile us unto yourself through the blood of your Son, Jesus. What a glorious truth it is, O God that we have been reconciled unto you and now members of the family of God. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We honor you. Lord, we just uh, want to look into your word this morning. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, grant us spiritual wisdom and understanding, please. Lord, open our eyes to see clearly what your Spirit is saying to us, the church. We pray that you would uh, just continue to do your transforming work and that you would make us like you, Lord. I pray that as we look into your word, Lord, that we would be changed. We thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather here and to proclaim your word freely. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, today we're, we're going to be on page number 27 and, and page number 29. So if you don't have those, there's a couple right up here in the front. And we are back in our study of Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, and we are into chapter 4. And last week we got through uh, verse 16. And uh, if you will, I'm going to uh, read this morning uh, from chapter 4, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 24, and try to bring the, the context here to our lesson. Ephesians 4:11 and following. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, 
excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen? Amen. All right. So here we are back in Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, last week we got through verse 16. And uh, just wanted to just briefly uh, give you a a review of, of verses 11 through 16. You remember that we were talking about uh, the structure of the church. And if you will, there's a, a, uh, the philosophy of ministry that is described here in these verses 11 through 16 that, that kind of describes uh, the process of ma- Christian maturity within the church. And, and we kind of called that section the maturity of the church. And, uh, and that, that section from <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 is describing how the church grows and how the body of Christ is built up. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a process that is described. So if you will, uh, looking at verse 11, he says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And he's talking about these gifts of God's grace which he has given to the church. That is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor teacher. And then, without giving any uh, description of what those offices are, he simply goes on to the purpose of, of their ministry, which is, he says, for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body. And... Uh, uh, for the work of ser- I'm sorry for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So what he's saying here is, and I want you to kind of have this thing locked in your mind. He says it's the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist and the pastor teacher that is here for the equipping of the saints. And when the saints are equipped, what are they going to do? They're going to do the work of the ministry. And and uh, when that work of the ministry is accomplished by the saints, what's going to happen? Building up the body is going to be built up. Building up of the body. The body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is built up by the work of the ministry done by the saints, equipped by the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. Okay? And he says that this building up of the body is in what things? In the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? Unto what? A mature man. Right? 
And that mature man, he says, is in the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Right? And he says, to the building up of the body until. Right? Which is to say that we're in this continual process of growing. And, and growing up, as he says in verse 15, growing up in all aspects into him. Right? And, and so the body is in this constant maturing process. And why is that process constant? Do you remember that discussion? Because we always have these new Christians that are coming in, right? Because of the work of the evangelist. And because of the work of the ministry that the saints are accomplishing, which is also evangelism, right? And so uh, uh, the body is, the, the, the church who is the mother of all the living continues to bring new birth by the ministry of the Word and the Spirit to, to those new babes who are coming in Christ. And so the, the body is always and constantly in this process of being built up and growing up into all aspects unto Him. Not to mention that each one of us is in that sanctification process. And we're each one of us going from that utterly carnal state that we were in when we were saved. We were in darkness. We were utterly carnal. And, and when we got saved, we were born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And that seed is now growing in us. And we are, each one of us, personally growing up in all aspects into Christ. Amen? And that's done as the body of Christ, as each member of the body of Christ does their proper working within the body, which is their work of the ministry. It's that fulfilling of those gifts of the Spirit that God has given to each member of the body of Christ. And as we are all equipped and actively doing that work of the ministry, we are all being built up in every aspect unto Christ. And, and that is what the, the structure of the church should look like. You know, you want to know what a healthy, well-balanced church looks like? Here it is, right out of the scriptures. Okay? You have this equipping process, which is the foundation of everything that's happening. And of course, we talked about that the church, back from Ephesians chapter 2, right, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being what? The chief cornerstone. Okay, And there's no foundation except Christ, which has been laid. And then Christ came and he spoke to us. He was literally the living word of God. And then the apostles and the prophets, they took that word and they solidified it in the, in the writing of the New Testament. And now we have the complete revelation of the word of God written and it is in our hands and this is the foundation which has been laid and now the evangelist and the pastor teacher are simply doing that equipping work okay which is all focused and centered around the word of God and so that's why when we come to church the pastor teacher that's that's his ministry remember I spoke to you about the didactic nature of the faith and how the nature of the faith is always instructional, admonishing, learning, equipping, teaching. It's all focused around the spiritual wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of God. Because that's what's equipping us. That's what's building us up. That's what's causing us to think like Christ. We are, we are coming to learn and know Christ. Not only through knowing things about Him, but knowing Him in experience. Right? We talked about that knowledge of the Son of God. Being a true knowledge of Christ, coming to know Him and love Him and walk with Him. Amen? 
<coughs> Excuse me. So this process is taking place. The, the, the saints are being equipped, and then the saints must do that work of the ministry, and then the body is built up in unity and in the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. And when the body is mature, the scripture says, they will what? No longer be children. Verse, uh, what is that? Verse 14. When the body of Christ is built up, they will become mature and no longer be children. And then he identifies what a, a child in Christ is like. What is he like in that scripture there? In verse 14. He's unstable. He's tossed to and fro, the scripture says, by what? By, by every wind of doctrine and teaching, which is after the what? The deceitfulness and the trickery of men. Right? And of course, we talked at great length about false teachings, and we talked about how these things blow through the church, and, and how you can watch the professing church just be tossed to and fro by every new trend and every new movement. You know, we call them these movements that come through Christianity. And, and you know, Long after the world has abandoned some thought, the church will hop on that bandwagon. It's, it's really funny what happens to the professing church. It's an amazing thing to think. But you see what it is? It's deceitful scheming. Remember I was telling you how we were looking at those scriptures in Second Peter about false teachers and how they secretly introduce destructive heresies? They don't just show up and say, Hey, I'm the devil and I'm going to teach you a bunch of false doctrine this morning. Right? It's secretly introduced. It comes in unaware. The false teacher presents himself as what? An angel of light. As one speaking the truth of God. Right? But the mature Christian is discerning because he has the knowledge of the Son of God. Because he's been equipped. Okay? And he's no longer an infant blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Right? But each one of them is doing their part in the proper working of the body of Christ, fulfilling that work of the ministry that they have been given by God so that the body can be built up. Carlos? In uh, MacArthur, you know, it describes parts of equipping, which is, uh, you're talking about equipping, which is interesting. He says, this refers to restoring someone to its original condition or being made fit or complete. In the context, it refers to leading Christians from sin to obedience. And then it also talks about the work of the ministry and the edification and the word is what people need. But I, I thought it was interesting that when you're equipped, you have to be led from sin to obedience. Amen. And there's like a prerequisite. You can't be equipped unless you're not in sin. Being obedient to God. Yeah, well, and, and actually the verses 17 and following, right, are going to get real specific about obedience, right? And, you know, we were talking about how Paul's going to begin to make this contrast between the old man and the new man, and starting in verse 17. But before he does that, he's explaining how this process of being built up and grown up into maturity, what it looks like in the church, Okay. Friends, that ought to be in, in, uh, impressed upon your mind. That ought to be an indelible thing in your mind. We've gone over that in great comprehensive detail. 
Okay? And as we've read through this book of Ephesians, and we've been learning through this book of Ephesians, take this knowledge that the Spirit of God has written to us in this book and let it be impressed upon your mind. You should never think about the church the same again. Now you understand the structure of the church. You understand what has to take place in the body, right? Tell me what happens if the apostle and the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher don't do their work. None of the rest of it happens. It falls apart. None of the rest of it happens. What, what if they do their work in failing degree? What if they're shabby? What if they're undisciplined? What if they're lazy and they don't do their work properly? What's going to happen? All the way up, the body is going to suffer. Okay. Of course, now we know the apostles and the prophets did their job. And they weren't lazy or shoddy about it, were they? Right? We have the foundation has been laid here. It's a done deal. The foundation has been laid. So they've done their part. But that that ongoing work of equipping now is done by the evangelist and the pastor teacher. Okay? And if they're not doing their job, if they're not following in the apostles' doctrine, and continuing to proclaim the word of God and and have our minds renewed in the knowledge of the Son of God and in the unity of the whole Christian faith. If they're not diligent at that work, the body is going to suffer. Why? Because this fundamental element right here has got to take place. The saints have to become equipped if they're going to do the work of the ministry. Cindy. I have a question on, my Bible says pastor and teachers. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're saying pastor-teacher. Do you mm-hmm. see that role as two separate people or one? No, and, and I, I went over that. I want to show you that in Did the you? notes. So you can refer back to this, but I'll, I'll comment on it also. Back in Ephesians 4, uh, at the bottom of page 26. But, yeah, basically the deal is, if you look in the context of the Scripture there, he, each one of those is separate. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. But the pastor-teacher is incorporated together, okay? And so and I explained that how if you look at the role of a pastor in the scriptures, then we can look at certain places like Acts 20 or 1 Peter 5 or the entire book of First and Second Timothy and Titus, right. right? It's very focused on the practical working of the ministry of a pastor, Okay. And because the the Christian faith is didactic by nature, remember we were talking about that last week, it it means it's according to teaching, it's according to doctrine, right? And and because of the nature of that faith, that is the primary work of a pastor. It is to continually and always be teaching and preaching the word of God. And and so uh, I believe that that's why there's a distinction made in the the writing of Paul. if you look in the Greek, it's even more distinct okay. that these are lumped together. Okay. okay? And no pastor is not a teacher. And no teacher is not a pastor in some level or degree, right. if you will. Like we have some Sunday school teachers here that have classes full of young people and, and they're teaching them the word of God. In a sense, they're pastoring them. Why? Because the primary work of a pastor is to teach Okay, it's a didactic process. That's a good way to say pastoring. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there's, there's more to the role of a pastor than just teaching. Okay, I'm just saying that that is primarily his work. Right. And, you know, I, we were talking about scriptures like from 2 Timothy where he says, you know, preach the word, man. Be in season and out of season. Right. Convince, 
rebuke and exhort with what? With great patience and careful instructions, right? For a time is going to come when men will no longer put up with sound doctrine, right? They'll heap to themselves teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn away from the truth unto what? Myths, right? He says, as a pastor, you've got to always and continually be contending for the truth of the word of God. Because there's going to always and continually be this striving against the truth. Because false teachers, by their deceitful scheming and by their trickery, are always seeking to draw away disciples unto themselves for some means of personal gain. Okay, That process has been going on in the church ever since there was a church. Paul in the New Testament is writing to refute heresies being taught by, by false teachers. The entire book of Colossians is Paul refuting Gnosticism. The book of 1 John is John disputing Gnosticism, which is, was a very pervasive heresy in the first century. And so, uh, you know, this, this process has been going on since there ever was a church. Right? And so now what does the enemy attack? You see, he's already a defeated foe. Because Christ has come and done that sacrifice of atonement. And in Christ, he has made us holy and perfect forever. Right? But now what's happening is, this process of the church is going on. So what is it that the devil is attacking? He's attacking the truth of the Word of God. He's attacking the veracity of the Word of God. Is this Bible to be believed? You see out there in the culture and the unbelievers... If he can just convince you that this is just a fairy tale, okay, then you can't be born of this incorruptible seed. Because it is by this seed that one is born again. Right? And and so what does he do? He constantly and continually attacks the truth of the Word of God. How does he do that? By infiltrating into the church those who preach the Word of God and clouding their message and veiling the things that they are saying about Christ, and bringing every kind of controversy and and false teaching and falsehood into the church so that that truth is maligned. Remember how it was talking about the the, uh, false teacher bringing the way of the truth into disrepute? Remember that in 2 Peter? And that's that false teacher's ministry. He's attacking the Word of God. He doesn't want that light of the truth to be shined. Okay? And so you, you see this great war, this great battle in this process. Because this is a process where, where we are being taught and instructed in the truth and the revelation of the Word of God and of the Kingdom of God. Amen? So that's where the enemy is attacking. And see, all through this process, if this is not taking place, if these pastors and teachers and evangelists are not doing their, their work, these saints are not going to be equipped And that work of the ministry is not going to get accomplished. And then what will happen? Then the body of Christ won't be built up. Right? And and this happens in varying degrees too, you know. I mean, you can be really good at this. And and a really healthy, mature congregation of people, you know, really should be a congregation full of ministers. Once they've come to that mature man, then they are what? They're like Christ, who is what? (laughs) The minister, the teacher, the disciple maker, the preacher, the healer, the comforter, right? And we're all taking on that nature of Christ as we grow into maturity. So when it's all said and done, what should our life look like? It ought to look like Christ. We ought to walk as he walked, do the things he did, say the things he said, go the places he went. 
Minister to the people he ministered to. Amen? Be committed like he was committed. Right? And so on and so forth. And so, here's what I'm saying. Here is the structure of the church right here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Okay? And I just want to point you, before we move on, to this one last point that we really didn't talk about too much. But if you look at the last part of verse 16, it says, <clears throat> According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now here's what I want to point out to you. Do you remember back in chapter 4, verse 7? Somebody read that for us. Ephesians 4, 7. Anyone? I got it. Kyle? But unto, every, <clears throat> but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Okay. But unto, in his Bible, every one of us, unto every one of us is given grace according to the gift of Christ. Right? And in my Bible here, unto each one of us. Okay? Now listen to what it, the context of his statements are there. You remember he said, Christ descended into the lower earthly regions, and he won the victory, and then he led his captives, he led captivity captive in a great procession, right? Remember that? We talked about that. And, and then it says, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave some as what? Apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. These are these gifts, right? But looking at verse 7 and going back to the beginning of that, what is he saying? Unto each one of us has been given the grace of God according to the gift of Christ. And I want to tell you that he's coming right back to that point in verse 16. And look what he says. He says, according to the proper working of each individual part. See, now he's not talking about the, the, the uh, body of Christ corporately. He's talking about each individual part, which is who? Us. Us as individuals, right? So here he is describing the corporate structure of the church and the process that the church gets built up. And look what he, he does when he brings it to a close. He says that happens as each individual part has its proper working. Mine says every, which is even better. Okay. All right, it, and it's still it's still encompassing every single Christian, right? We all have a vital part to play in the body of Christ. The problem is we don't all realize it because many of us are still in infancy. We're still learning that we have a work of the ministry to accomplish. Okay, and 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 you should be you should see this contrast in your life when when you come into the church and you're utterly carnal. Your, your, your life is almost useless. You don't have any purpose. You've been following after darkness, walking after the way of the world. You've been in, in spiritual death. You've been dead in transgressions and sins. You come into the church, you get the revelation of the kingdom of God, you begin to learn, hey, now I'm a member of the family of God. And I'm a part of that holy temple where God lives by His Spirit. And, and more than that, I'm a minister in the body of Christ. I'm being equipped for a good work. I'm growing up into a mature Christian so that I will ultimately look like what? Christ. Christ. Amen? Who, when we look at the life of Christ, what do we see? Nothing but ministry, day in and day out. Sun up to sundown. Amen? Ministry. Which leads to what? A cross. 
And that's what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself daily and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Amen? So he's telling us here that each individual part has to do its part for the growth of the body and for the building up of itself in love. Okay? And that work of the ministry, friends, that's a work of love. We are ministers of love. And I want to tell you, the most loving thing you can do is to teach and admonish and instruct with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is the primary substance of our ministry. But what's interesting is, in the body of Christ, God has given each of us this this gift according to the gift of Christ. He's given us an endowment of a gift. And and it kind of takes on a different form with each different person, if you will. And and many are, are very encouraging when you talk to them. And, and, and some don't have a lot to say. They just have good, strong hands and they want to work, you know. And, and others are very analytical and all they ever want to do is, 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 uh, is teach and instruct and tell people about this and that and the other concerning the truth. Others want to comfort and they, they, they want to, to, to minister in, in that way. And others are very excited about their salvation. I look at Rosie back there, and she's just got evangelists written all over, you know. And 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 we're just we're gifted with these different graces of God, and and uh, you know each individual part has its proper working, and it's vital that we do that work. You're in the body of Christ for a reason, because God has called you out of darkness by name. He has chosen you and drawn you into His family. And made you to be an heir with him. And called you a son or a daughter of God. And granted you an eternal inheritance in heaven. And right now, here, we got a work to do. Amen? Because night is coming when no man can work. But today is the day of salvation. And we got a work to do. Amen? We're all ministers. In our own way. Okay? But you, 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 can't, you can't take this scripture and exclude it from your life. It's describing a process that you're involved in, if indeed you are in Christ. And you are growing up into that maturity. And you are doing that work of the ministry so the body of Christ can be built up. And each individual part has to do their work. And I look at Romans 12 there, 4 and 6. He says, For just as we have many members in one body... And all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. You see how he's saying the exact same thing in Romans? He's saying that we all have these gifts which are given to us according to that grace or according to Christ's gift, like it said in Ephesians 4.7. And each one of us should what? Exercise them accordingly. You can't divorce yourself from this body of Christ if you are in Him. You have a gift that's been given, and it's vital for the building up of that body of Christ. And in that unity of the faith, each part has to have its proper working. 
Okay? So I want to encourage you. If, I, if we were to sit you down and, and ask you, what is your proper working within the body of Christ? Could you answer? Well, yes, of course. Yeah, this is what I do. This is how I'm gifted. This is how God saved me. I'm excited about doing this ministry. Man, I'm in this ministry. I live for this ministry that I have. Right? Well, if you were a mature Christian, that would be your answer. You would very clearly be able to identify that gifting and that calling that you have from God. Why? Because you're busy doing that work of the ministry. If indeed you are a mature Christian. And if you're not, hey, that's okay. Because we're all in that, in, in that state of growing and learning, okay? So what are we growing and learning to do? We're growing and learning to become like Christ and to understand how he has gifted us to fit into this body and do this work of the ministry. Okay? Now I want to tell you, as a new Christian, and we have, we have new Christians in here, quite a few. Uh, listen, there comes a time when you need to come in, you need to learn the fundamentals and the essentials of the Christian faith. You need to get your feet on solid ground. And this is a process that takes many years. It doesn't happen overnight, okay? And you shouldn't become frustrated with it. It it, it should be, you know, you should come into church, and and when the Word of God is being taught, you come in hungry for the Word of God. And and if that pastor's doing his job, he's going to be teaching you the Word of God. We're going to be looking in the Bible, and we're going to be explaining what it says very clearly, right? And those are going to be the words of life to you. And you're going to be hanging on every word. But eventually, that's all going to begin to take root. And you're going to begin to be strengthened in the inner man by this truth. And your mind is going to become transformed and renewed. And you're going to begin to think like Christ thinks. And when that begins to happen, you're going to begin to do what Christ does. And say what Christ says. And think what he thinks. Okay? And that's when you begin to become mature and you begin to understand what your gifting and your calling is so that you can do that work in the ministry. So, you know, if you're a newer Christian or maybe you're an older Christian and just never been equipped, listen, sit back and drink it in and learn and let God heal you. I mean, many of us come to Christ and we're so wounded and torn and beat up and, you know, and it it takes a lot of time to get healed and, and be whole. Not, not that you're not made perfect forever in Christ when you're saved. Of course you are. Okay? But you're having to learn how to practice the Christian life. You're having to learn how to live in holiness and, and righteousness. You're having to learn to think with the thoughts of the new man. Okay? And as you learn and you grow in the understanding of the kingdom of God and in the knowledge of the Son of God, this wholeness of life becomes yours. Okay? And then you begin to bubble up like a fountain, right? Jesus said, He who believes in me from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Many of you know what I mean because that spring is in there bubbling right now. And many of you, it's been overflowing for years. Amen? But don't divorce yourself from this process. If you are in Christ, you're a part of this body of Christ and you have a work of ministry to do. Amen? Okay, he, he dives off into this thing in verse 17 and following. I want to give you a brief summary of verses 17 through 19. Okay, there he is talking about the Gentiles. And look what he says. He says, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you know that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. 
Okay, he's going to say, look, you can't live like the Gentiles anymore. All right? And then he's going to describe what that living of the Gentiles is like. And I want to tell you, he doesn't really point out any specific sin. But what does he point to? Look what he says. He says they are futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their heart. They are ignorant, he says, and they are calloused. He doesn't describe what they do. He describes how they are, right? Now, isn't that just like the book of Ephesians? The first three, he spends three chapters telling us who we are and all of these riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints that we have in Christ. And he talks about how we were chosen from before the foundation of the earth and, 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 and in Christ we've been adopted and we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins and, and our life has been predestined according to God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And he goes on telling us about this incomparably great power that we have and how Christ is the sovereign king. And he tells us all this wonderful stuff about who we are and what we possess. For three chapters before he ever once stops to tell us something to do, right? And then he gets into chapter 4, and he's going to start telling us what to do. He's going to say, look, friends, if, you, if this is you, if you're a son of God, this is how you live, right? And we, we know chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians is all about practical instruction, right? First three chapters is our position in Christ. Last three chapters is our practice in Christ, right? And so... What he's going to do before he dives off into this very specific instruction about what we do and what we don't do, he's going to tell us again who we were. Now, you remember when he did that before? Back in Ephesians chapter 2. And I gave you these printouts today right here. Um, this, it's a chart here. And just kind of looking at the scripture and what it has to say about the old man and the new man. Well, if you flip that over on the back side... I put some scriptures there that talk about depravity in Ephesians. Okay, In this book of Ephesians that we're studying, there are certain texts of scripture that describe what we were like before we became Christians. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins when you what? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So you remember back then when Paul was talking about salvation and how it happens, right? He was describing that spiritual state that we were in. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were living after the flesh. We were following Satan. And we were by nature. It was natural for us to be an object of the wrath of God. Right? But God, who is rich in mercy, right, made us alive. Even when we were dead in transgressions, by grace you have been saved. Amen? Remember that? And then in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13... He was describing what we were like and what happened in the body of Christ corporately. Remember that? And he said, Therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time what? 
separate from God, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? He was telling us what we were like. What were we like? We were separate from Christ. We were, we were excluded from the promise of God. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were dead in our sins and in our transgressions, following the devil and living after the flesh. That's who we were, right? But he went on to describe and tell us that what? We were new creations in Christ. That, that Jesus had become our peace and that now we were being built up into a holy temple in the Lord where God lives by his spirit. You remember that in chapter 2? Okay, well, here we are back in, down in chapter 4, and he's about to give us some real practical instruction, but he doesn't want us to forget who we were. Right? Because, listen, the Christian life is a life of contrast from what we were. And he says, I affirm together with the Lord that you must no longer live like you once lived. When you come to Christ, he says, you got to change. There's got to be a new man. There's got to be newness of life. There's a great contrast between your life now as a Christian and who you once were. And friend, if you can't see that contrast, you're probably not a Christian. Okay? And as, as we go through this, you'll see exactly what I mean. But look what he says in chapter 4, verse 17 through 20. He says, This I affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And then look what he does. He describes what their state of mind and their state of being was. Okay? He says, In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And he's saying, you friends can no longer walk that way. You can no longer live that way. Because he's going to go on to say, you didn't learn Christ Jesus that way. You did not so learn Christ. Right? And remember how I was telling you verses 17 through 24. He's drawing this great contrast between the old man and the new man, right? Which is why I made this chart for you. Because this has a lot of other scriptures from the New Testament that talk about the old man and the new man. And, and you know, it, we have this whole idea of put on and put off, which he's going to tell us here in a few minutes. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, there is a great contrast between the old life of being dead in our transgressions and sins and walking like the course of the world, and thinking like the world thinks, and doing what the world does. There's a great contrast from that, and walking in Christ, who is a minister of love, who is pure as the driven snow, who is holy and righteous and godly and upright and wise and true. Amen? Great contrast. Great contrast. And so that's what he's, he's pointing out. He's saying this is, how, uh, this is how we were. And he says, you can no longer live this way. There must be a great contrast. Okay? And so he goes on to describe uh, what they are. He, uh, he says, uh, in the futility of their mind, 
being darkened in their understanding. Okay, so what does he point to first? He says it's their thinking. They think like the world. They walk like the world because they think like the world. But what does he say about their thinking? He says their thinking is futile. It's futile. It brings about no useful purpose whatsoever. And what does sin do? But destroy. And when you walk like a heathen, and you walk around and you're angry and you're grumpy and you're jealous and you're envious, and your heart is full of strife, what useful thing do you do in your life? But walk around and hurt other people because you're so self-centered, you can't focus on anybody else but yourself. Describe what you were like before you came to Christ. Amen? You're living your life for self. You're not living your life to sacrifice it for others. You're not following after the Lord Jesus. And gentleness and kindness and peace and mercy. Love. Thanksgiving. Self-control. No, when you live like the heathen, man, you're uncontrolled. You're out of control. And you don't care. You don't care who you hurt. As a matter of fact, you don't even ever think about it. You just go on through life living that way. Just like the heathens live. Right? Turn on the evening news. What do you see? A bunch of useless, futile, darkened lives of depravity and ignorance. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what do they do? They give themselves to every kind of sensual and greedy kind of living with a continual lust for more. Friends, that describes the world around us. Why do you think there's so much pain and destruction? Why do you think people take machetes and hack villages full of people up into pieces? Why do you think we have serial killers running around? Why do you think that you can't even go to work without somebody biting your left ear off because you spilled coffee on their shoe or something? <laughs> because that's the way the world lives. They have no idea of loving kindness and forgiveness and healing and, and gentleness and peace. And they're not enlightened to, to the kingdom of God. They live in the kingdom of this world, which is full of strife and anger and discord. Can't even drive down the street without some guy flipping you off or giving you a piece of his mind or cutting you off because he couldn't give a rip if you're coming down the road or not. Right? Because that's the way they live. They live, they live a life of futile thinking. They have no useful purpose. And that's what we're like before we come to Christ. We're following after ourselves. Now, I understand this happens in degree. We, we weren't all little Hitlers running around when we were six years old. I understand. I'm not suggesting that we're utterly depraved. Right? Just that every part of our nature is depraved. Our mind, our soul, our will. It's all very self-centered until we are born again. Amen? And so this is what Paul is saying. The heathens are futile in their thinking. Here Paul points out the thinking of a Gentile. It is futile and darkened. The mind before regeneration is in darkness because it has not received the light of the revelation of regeneration. You know... Before you become born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say? 
He said, lest you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you don't understand who God is, there's no fear and reverence for the holy God. You don't understand His kingdom is a kingdom of sin, and, or, or of righteousness and judgment against sin. And if you don't understand that God is righteous and holy and that He's appointed a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness, then you have no regard for righteousness. What do you care? You don't see God on His throne. There's no fear, like Romans says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Right? And if you will, turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Listen, you know, when Paul says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, and then he describes their thinking process. He describes the, the, the level of revelation that they have. Listen, he is describing the world apart from Christ. Because he's going to go on and make the contrast. He's going to say, but you didn't learn Jesus that way. He's going to bring us to a contrast and say, that's not how we learned Christ. <coughs> and he's making this great contrast between the world. Listen, the world is steeped in futile thinking because their hearts and their minds are darkened. They don't have light in their spiritual eyes to see. Okay? And, and if you think my descriptions are somewhat graphic and, and startling, listen to what the Bible has to say. Let's look there in Romans chapter 1. Paul is basically... You know, the book of Romans is a book of... It's basically a technical discourse on salvation. From the first to the last, he gives 12 chapters of doctrinal instruction on exactly what salvation is, how it happens, what the former state of man is, and the whole process of salvation and of Christ coming to the earth and the gospel and the cross and baptism and uh, you know divine election and regeneration and the nation of Israel and the whole thing right down to the... you know He gives a very clear exposition of what salvation is all about but here in chapter one he is he is uh, beginning to talk about what the gentile world is like and 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 why there is a great need for the gospel in the world right look at verse 18 and following he says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against what ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness Right? They don't they don't pay any attention to God. They suppress his truth by doing what? By sinning against him. Again and again and again and again and again. No fear of God before their eyes. Because that which is known about God, Romans 1, 19, is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Okay? He's saying, look, the power of God is evident for everyone to see. You simply have to open your eyes. Right? So that men are without excuse. Yet they do what? They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. They continue to sin against God, right? Why? Because they think like a sinner. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? He goes on. I want to look down um, 
down at verse 28. Look what it says here. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind. You see, it's the thinking process of a heathen. And that's why I want to tell you it's the thinking process of a Christian that causes you to be effective and productive. You've got to begin to think like Christ if you're going to act like Christ. And you've got to know what Christ thinks if you're going to think like Christ. Amen? That's why it's imperative that we meditate in the Word of God daily so, so that our mind can be renewed with the thinking of God. Amen? You see this contrast? The Gentile has a what? A depraved mind. His thinking is depraved. And because of that, what are his actions? They're depraved. Depraved. They're just, it's just utter sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness. Look what it goes on to say. He has given them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Turn on the evening news. What do you get? Tube full of gossip. Here, let's just sin with all the world. Let's learn about everybody's dirty details. Right? what the world is like. All you do is go around and gossip about everyone else and everybody else's sin and everybody else's problems. Self-righteous, full of wickedness and malice, slanders, he says, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, he says, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Friends, that's a description of the human condition. You just take a look at the world around. You want to know why there's so much pain and suffering and death? It's because of sin. The world is full of sin because the world is full of sinners. And that sin has brought death to us. There wasn't no such thing as pain and suffering and crying and dying until men began to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness by their wicked deeds and their wicked words and their wicked thoughts. And now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Our suffering, our death, our pain is the wrath of God. It's consequence from sin. There's coming a day when God will have no more of it. And in the words of the prophet Zephaniah, he says, Behold, I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. You can read that. Zephaniah chapter 1 goes on describing for 20 verses how God is going to sweep the dirty face of this planet clean and baptize it in fire. Amen? Listen, the wrath of God is being revealed. 
And you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to come to pass rather quickly. Right? We're going to learn about that when we get to chapter 5. He says, because of all of this unrighteousness that we do, the wrath of God is coming. Amen? In its fullness, it's coming. Be warned, he says. Right? But, you know, we, we see this picture of the Gentile world. That's us, by the way. We are the Gentiles. We are the Gentile world. Remember what a Gentile is? Somebody tell me. Somebody that's not a Jew. Okay? So if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Okay? So he's basically describing the whole world. Okay? Of course, the Jews at that time were the only ones who had the, the promise of God, the embodiment of truth. The only ones that had an acceptable way unto God and instruction from heaven. The law of Moses was instruction from heaven. They had it. Nobody else had it. Everyone else was steeped in their ignorance and their idolatry from birth. Right? The Gentile world. We are all Gentiles. He goes on and describes what this is like. I want you to see one other passage in Romans 3. Turn over to Romans 3. And of course, he's, he's saying, look, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's saying, look, the world is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness, but God is coming to judge. And in chapter 2, he lays down the principles of God's judgment. And he says, you know what? Even though the Gentiles are this bad, he says, you Jews are no different. And then he, he, in chapter 3, he begins to sum the whole thing up. And he says, all you Jews and all you Gentiles alike are all under the law of God. And you've been convicted as transgressors. And that's in chapter, latter chapter, latter part of chapter 3 of Romans, is when he gives us the great good news. Right? That there's a righteousness of God that's been revealed. That's not according to works, but according to faith. Right? And that you can trust in the Lord Jesus. But here in in chapter 3, look at verse 9 and following. Again, he's going to describe the state of the whole world here. uh, This is the Gentile world here he's describing. I'm sorry. It says in verse 9, Jews and Greeks. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Romans 3, 9. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless, futile, right? There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Their poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay? Again, he's describing what the world in its sin is like. You see that? It doesn't seek after God. It doesn't know God. They've all turned away. There's not even one who does good. Okay? In Ephesians 4, when Paul begins to describe the Gentile, he says that they're futile in their thinking. Their thinking has no useful purpose. Okay? But look what else he says. He says, 
being darkened in their understanding. Okay? So now, when he uses the term darkened, what's he referring to? I mean, dark, darkness is the opposite of what? Light. Okay, now what's he saying? They're darkened in their understanding. Right? You know, if you take the word light, if you look up the word light in the dictionary, you know what it says? That which causes the eye to see. That which causes the eye to see. So, if you don't have any light, what? You can't see. It's dark. There's, you, there's no vision, right? And so when Paul describes a Gentile's thinking, listen to what he says. They're darkened in their understanding, right? And that's why I keep telling you that salvation is a revelatory work. It's the revealing of God to the mind, to the soul. He turns on the light. And the light of the truth floods the soul. And now you can see and you can understand. It's not that you couldn't walk around and see the birds and the bees and the mountains and the trees. You could do that. But what couldn't you see? Exactly. You couldn't see the glory of God. You couldn't see sin and righteousness and judgment. You couldn't see the kingdom. Lest a man be born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not, under, does not accept the things of God. Indeed, he cannot understand them. Right? The natural man cannot understand the things of God. Why? Because the light hasn't come on. He's darkened in his understanding. He's futile in his thinking. Right? And this is what the scripture says. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. Sorry, here's a couple of these handouts. Oh, did you have them? Okay. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, he says there, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, what has happened? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see, the unbeliever is darkened. He doesn't have the light. He cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ because sin has blinded his eyes. So what must happen for that believer, I'm I'm sorry, for that unbeliever to be saved? God must come and turn on the light. It's a revelation from God. You see that? Why? Because his mind is blinded. He doesn't have the light. He's futile in his thinking. He's darkened in his understanding. Okay? Look what he goes on to say. Excluded from the life of God. That the Gentile is excluded from the life of God. You know, God wasn't kidding in the garden when he told Adam and Eve. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Ever since then, the entire creation has been plunged into death. It's been plunged into suffering and pain and unspeakable agonies for thousands of years. Mankind has been under. Amen? can't sweep it under the rug, friends. It's a reality. Sin and death are upon us. I trust you've all tasted of it. And it's thoroughly miserable. Amen? 
I don't know about you, but I'm hoping for a different city. Amen? I'm looking for a place where there is no more death or dying or crying or pain. Where the old order of things has passed away. Amen? This isn't my home. I don't belong here. I'm not comfortable here. I don't want to go to hell with all my drunken buddies. Amen? Because in that place is weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Amen? I want to go to the home of righteousness where the king of glory is and the prince of peace. And we lie down and there's no more harm on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And we've got cool water and fresh green pastures. And we find rest for our souls. No more toil. Amen? It's a place of rejoicing and dancing and singing and true, godly, righteous celebration of holiness. And the King is there. Amen? We get to see God. Imagine that. You can't even imagine it. You can't even imagine the beauty of one tassel hanging from the bottom of his garment. Much less the unrestrained glory that shines from his throne. Amen? Amen. I can't wait. (laughs) How about you? I'm tired of this place. It's looking awful ugly down here. Amen? I got my hopes set somewhere else. I've read about the promise. Not only that, he turned on the light. God turned on the light and let me see it by faith. <coughs> Amen? Amen? And I no longer fix my eyes on what is seen, but now on what is unseen. Because what is unseen is eternal. Amen? Amen? I got my eyes fixed on Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen? So what ought I to be? I ought to be a man of peace. Amen? I ought to be like Jesus. I ought to hate sin and I ought to love God. Amen? A minister of love. Amen? That's who we are. Not like these Gentiles. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous. You know, you think about these words. The hardness of the heart. They have become callous. What are these words describing? These words describe something terrible. Having a hardened heart toward the righteousness of God, mankind is laden with every kind of sin and impurity. And his conscience hardly knows it. Mankind has hardness of heart and is callous, which is to say he has become morally insensitive. The verb translated callous means to be past feeling or unashamed. You know what that means? That means we just can go on down here to the college to a drunken orgy and take off all our clothes and do all kinds of impure acts. And you know what? We don't feel any shame. We just run headlong into sin. That's what it means. And that's how Gentiles live. Now, granted, it may not be a college party. But, you know, hey, pick your poison. 
I don't know about you. Look, look around at some of the unsaved people you know. Look how their families are just falling apart, being torn to and fro by every kind of vile sin that tears these families apart. I mean, look at the corruption that's in our culture. It's, it's just doom, friends. It's doom. It's not heading anywhere good. <laughs> Unless God brings some kind of a revival to this country, listen, things are not going to be the same in the future like they are now. We are reaping the benefit of obedient parents. We are reaping the benefit of a culture who has largely feared God for a long time. And that is on the decline. We are in a moral freefall in this country. Okay? And as you see that happening to our culture, you better believe the wrath of God is going to be revealed. And I don't know about you, but I'm raising kids. I want to tell you what you can arm your kids with. You don't arm them with futile thinking. And you don't allow their understanding to be darkened. But you teach them about Christ, who is the Savior of their soul. Who is the light of this world. Who will keep them, even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? Help God turn that light on. Teaching the Word of God every day. Every day. Open up that Bible and tell those kids who Christ is. Amen? It's crazy, this world we live in. These words describe it very well. (laughs) Futile in their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of what? Ignorance. They ignore God. Because of the hardness of their heart, they have become calloused. They've thrown off all sense of shame. We're living in this world, friends, and it's having an effect on our life, on our families. Okay? Paul's going to go on to tell us, we didn't learn Christ like that. And there has got to be a great contrast between that former Gentile way of life and our new life in Christ. There needs to be a tremendous contrast, and that's what the text of these scriptures here is telling us. Amen? Amen. And, uh, boy, I don't even like talking about this bad stuff. <laughs> I want to get on to the good stuff. <clears throat> but you know what? We need to hear it. Our eyes need to be opened to what battle we're really fighting. Amen? Okay, so next week we're going to learn about Christ. Amen? We'll be looking at verses 20 and following. Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your great love to us. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken these words about our former way of life. I pray, Lord, that as we come to know you more and more, that you would make us increasingly aware of that old man of sin which lives within us. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us strength to put him to death, that the new man might live in us, that new man of righteousness and holiness. God, I pray that we would become like Jesus. Lord, that we would see this great distinction in our life between 
the, the evil man of sin that lives in us and the new man of righteousness that you have granted us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to understand what these things mean. And Father, that you would just have mercy on our, on our state and, and, and give us light from heaven that we might see and know and understand the truth that is in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for all the good work that you're doing in our life. We thank you, dear God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.